Every month, we offer exciting new webinars for our community. Topics include how to use retirement accounts to buy real estate overseas, how to get a second passport in Latin America, why you should sell your stock portfolio and move your money offshore, how to buy beachfront rental properties in Brazil for less than $100,000, or apartments in Paraguay for less than $60,000. If you want to join us for free for these presentations with live Q&A, insider secrets, and exclusive opportunities with my professional network of experts, then go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for free upcoming presentations. expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. So you guys may have seen in the email newsletter that I got expatmoney.com. This is a URL that I have been wanting to get for like six years now. Some other company had it based out of Dubai and they wouldn't sell it to me. They weren't even using it. They weren't doing anything with it, but they wouldn't sell it to me. The guy just said, I'm going to hold on to it and you can't have it. So I tried to negotiate and we went back and forth many, many, many times over the years and I finally negotiated it. I'm not gonna tell you how much it cost, but it was not cheap. I paid a pretty penny for this. So the main website going forwards for all of my work is going to be expatmoney.com. We still have expatmoneyshow.com, but that's really gonna be designated just for the podcast itself. But on the other one, we're gonna have webinars. We have new articles. We started a new blog. We've got new lead magnets. We even started a store on there that we're gonna be selling different courses and programs. So there's gonna be tons of exciting things happening at expatmoney.com. So you guys can go there, check out the new website, let me know what you think and then bookmark the website because you're going to want to come back literally every single week because we got so much exciting things coming out. So expatmoney.com. I'm really excited. I hope you guys are too. There's going to be lots of cool stuff there for you. Okay, let's get to the interview. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe, and this is the Expat Money Show. Today's guest is a fascinating man. He started as a manager at Hugo Boss, founded a sponsorship agency for Formula One, and moved to Monaco. He has visited every country in the world, in particular the polar regions, remote corners of the globe, spent time with warlords, and is often known by his nickname, Dr. Danger Zone. He is the ambassador of Germany to the world's youngest country, Liberland, and he also happens to be a very dear friend of mine. So I'm really excited about this conversation and to have him on the show. Please welcome Kolia Spori. Kolia, how are you, my friend? I'm good. It's always great to smoke a cigar with you. Absolutely. So what are you smoking today, by the way? I always smoke Romeo and Julieta, a real Cuban cigar. I'm smoking Cubans today as well. I had a friend of mine, actually a client, I have a Norwegian client, and for my birthday, he brought me a box of Cubans, and I'm smoking the Pardigas. I'm sure there's a better Spanish way to say that, but they're actually very, very nice. I really like them. Excellent. It's great that we share this passion. Absolutely. So, Kolia, why don't you take a second and kind of walk us through your backstory? How did you get into danger zone travel? How did you decide that you wanted to dedicate your life to this? I'm very curious. I want to hear it all. 
My life started at age 11 when my parents, who were expatriates for the German government, were sent to Istanbul. So this was at a time with a military regime, a tough times actually, and I think this has formed my outlook on life for the rest of it, because I do enjoy traveling to difficult and dangerous places. However, in the meantime, after Istanbul, I studied economics. I consider myself an Austrian school economist, like so many in our scene, valuing self-ownership, volunteerism, non-aggression principle. These are things that I learned later on in life, not actually so much in my studies. My first job was at Hugo Boss, and this opened the world to me because I was head of sponsorship, and we were in Formula One racing, IndyCar racing, professional golf, Davis Cup tennis, uh, heavyweight boxing. And as a sponsor for a nice brand, you meet interesting people. So I decided to create my own company in Formula One. I had an agency with several offices in, in several different countries. And I started to make interesting deals with sponsors. And uh, this went on. I, went, I was in Formula One almost 20 years. And then I decided to travel and see the whole world. At the time, I had visited around 100 countries. Now I have seen them all. It's 193 United Nations countries. And I have a particular interest in war zones. And I guess I've been to pretty much all of them that are contemporary going on. I'm not sure if you've just recently been, but I know you were sending me emails inviting me to come with you to the Donbass region in Ukraine. I know you've been there several times before, but did you end up doing that trip this year as well, or it's been put off? It's on hold until we are allowed to land in the Donbass area. I was three times in Donbass during the war. The war did not start in 2022. It started in 2014 when the CIA-led brought a regime to Ukraine that started to aggress Russia. And it was sort of a low-intensity war for eight years, but then now, unfortunately, it turned high-intensity. However, when I was there alone in 2015 and with three friends in 2018 and last year again, every time we heard mortar fired from the West Ukrainian side into Donetsk city, and last year, I even went to the trenches in the front line. And while I was in the trench with the flak vest and bulletproof helmet, uh, six mortars were fired in our direction. However, they did not land near us. So nevertheless, I was quite a bit scared. Yeah, I've had a, a fascination with these types of places as well. Certainly, I have not done as many dangerous places as you. Well, first of all, you visited every country in the world. I think I'm at just under 110 now, something like that. I was stuck at 105 for quite a few years, but this year I've gotten to go to a couple more and I have a few more on the go. But I remember even going to Morocco 20, 20 some odd years ago and there being terrorist bombings down the street. Same when I was in Colombia back in 2003, there was terrorist bombings like a block away from where I was sleeping at my hotel, or I guess it was actually a youth hostel because I didn't have much money. 20 some odd years ago. But I've always been very fascinated by visiting a lot of these countries. And some of the trips that you have done just blow my mind on the places you choose to go. For me, it was a fascinating development that I could turn on a magnet and attract those things that interest me in life. And it was actually learning how the world ticks, how wars uh, are created, how the players work in a war zone. As you have just mentioned, you have more than 100 countries. And I have this annual meeting of the most traveled people in the world called ETIC, where the qualifying criteria is to have visited 100 UN countries. That's why 
okay, we know each other longer, but I put you on the list for this uh, trip this year to Donbass, which will happen or not. I hope it does. But in the past, we have been, for example, in Mogadishu, uh, Somalia. We have been to Chechnya, to Grozny, and where else? Uh, Baghdad, for example. And it is particular spirit when you meet with a nice group of people in a difficult and dangerous place. Well, we have a friend in common, Jeff Berwick, who has been on the show four or five years ago on my program. And I remember he actually went to Somalia as well. Did he go with you? Because I know that you guys are quite close too. At that time, we didn't know each other yet. Ah, okay. We went on a similar setup. Mogadishu is one of those countries where you can't really do an individually designed trip. You will end up with a local fixer or agent in any case. So we probably did a very similar trip. And Mogadishu is the most intense, the most dangerous capital city in the world and has been like that for many, many years, I, I think. And hotels blow up all the time. There is a tax. So it's not easy to go there. And kudos to Jeff. I wish we would have done that trip together. He's one of my personal heroes when it comes to understanding the world and uh, his own personal philosophy. I love to watch his videos. Well, I was laughing because I guess that a bunch of people had said to him, you're an anarchist, you don't believe in government, then why don't you go to Somalia? And he basically said, okay, fine, went and saw. And then it was like, this place has more government intervention than anywhere else he's ever been in the world. So what was your experience like when you went to Somalia? Jeff was right. There is a lot of security. There's four different layers of security forces that are all paid for by the state. Some are American trained, some are sort of the local force, uh, I think some are Turkish trained, and you have all kinds of foreign governments intervening with the local government, and you have very strict procedures at the airport. So the comparison is wrong for those who criticize libertarians that Somalia would be a country without a government. If I think about it, I love traveling in Russia, especially in Siberia, because that was a pretty free feeling for many years. Now it will be more difficult to travel to Russia possibly, but there you were really in the wilderness and you very rarely saw any government entity whatsoever. So what is it about these dangerous countries or the war zone that really attracts you? You had mentioned that it's a way that you are able to understand the world. Let's dig into that a little bit because I think that's really fascinating. It's a process. When I had visited many countries, and I wanted to see them all, inevitably, I started to go to more difficult uh, countries. However, this particular spirit that you feel in a war zone or a, a crisis area started in Ireland, Northern Ireland, Belfast. Quite early in my travels, even there, it was possible to feel along this former front line where you have big walls with a lot of graffiti and where you have sort of cages in, uh, on top of the houses. And I had a great taxi driver who explained the whole situation to me. Even that was already an initial experience on getting a war zone and a front area explained by a local person. So later I ended up alone because my American travel mate didn't show up. I ended up alone in Uganda, Rwanda, Burundi and Congo. And that was already a step higher up, especially Goma in Congo. So the doses get heightened and then... I met a wonderful friend who is one of my closest travel buddies, an Austrian who is in the luxury industry. With him, I went, for example, to Afghanistan and to Libya. In Libya, we were during the Battle of Benghazi in 2011, I believe, the Arab Spring. 
right in Benghazi. That was already pretty wild. And then he and I were talking, well, what can we still, where can we travel to, to add to that? It's probably impossible. And I said, Grozny, Chechnya seems a very wild place. And turns out that the president of Chechnya was already a client of my Austrian buddy without him knowing. So we got ourselves, he got himself invited. I was accompanying him to, to Chechnya. And that is one of my favorite places in the world. It is actually very safe and organized now, but it was not 10 years ago. Yeah, that's wild. I mean, you also mentioned something there about going to more difficult places and after traveling for a while. I mean, we've both been traveling for a very, very long time. I was always attracted to the places that no one else would go and no one else would talk about. Like, actually, it would surprise some people to know, like, some really popular places in the world I've never been to. I've Danish heritage. I've never been to Denmark, for example. I've never been to Sweden or things like that. But I've been to North Korea. I've been to Iran. I've been to Nigeria. And you mentioned Uganda. I've been to Uganda and I sit on the board of directors of a nonprofit there. And I've always just enjoyed going to places where lots of other people don't know them and don't really have any idea what they're talking about. I like to make up my own mind about a lot of these places. I completely understand you. And I learned by going to such places that information we get on television or in our mainstream media is the direct opposite of the reality on the ground. So this is a process that started for me maybe 15 years ago and uh, became stronger and stronger. And now, after we have been enduring uh, this corona regime, I think anybody with more than two brain cells knows that something is fundamentally wrong in the world when it comes to information, uh, the good and the rogue countries, and the, the good and the bad leaders, this is all upside down. For sure. I mean, I remember it's probably almost 10 years ago that I went to Iran and I had literally family members and friends who thought I was going to get kidnapped going into Iran. And I was like, you know, it's not actually a war zone there. It's actually, there's nothing on the streets. It turned out to be one of the most beautiful countries I've ever visited on planet Earth with really sweet people on the streets and amazing food and huge amounts of history there. And I just found it so fascinating. And in mainstream media, they've kind of convinced people that they're going to eat your babies and you know, you're going to get kidnapped and decapitated. And it's like, no, that has nothing to do with what's going on there. It's just so bizarre how they, so I would say purposefully get it wrong in the mainstream media. Exactly. And you know what is really fascinating me or almost shocking me? In my scene of the most traveled people, a majority travels, travels to exotic places, travels to the end of the world. But what they see there, they see with the eyes and the filter that has been shaped by their television at home. So although they are on the ground, they don't get to see the reality because they have been too long in the government indoctrination camps and propaganda camps and so on. And I have some uh, issues because of that with some of my co-travelers, because some might say Iran is a bad regime. You know, one can think about countries that have a religious leader as the head of state negatively. That's why I think very negatively about United Kingdom, because they always think they're the light of democracy, but their leader is leading the army and leading the church, right? <laughs> any sort of representation of the average British uh, English person at all. Although in Iran, and Iran is a very old culture, sophisticated culture, 
they get along, although they have been boycotted for 20 years by the Satan, by Shetan, call it, by the U.S. Yeah, and it hasn't worked, and we're still trying it on, I say we, I mean, you know, Western countries are still trying it again and again and again. And it's been proven not to work, but they do it anyways. I think it's probably also one of the reasons that you and I get along quite well is because I don't have that type of indoctrination. I mean, I dropped out of school at 12 years old, so I started traveling internationally as a teenager and just was not exposed to that type of concentration camp for as long as most people. I never went on and did higher education or a master's or PhD or anything like this. I mean, I've traveled a lot, nonstop for over 20 years. And that that and reading real books by real people has been my education. So I think it's probably one of the reasons that you know you and I get along very well is because we can see the world through a very different lens than pretty much anyone else out there. There's not many people that view things quite like us, I would say. That's right. It's only people who are real self-owners, uh, who don't depend on a workplace, on the state, on uh, whatever nanny structure they have. So the, we're too few people to really win a whole country for us. Uh, Liberland is, is maybe an example where we are trying. However, if I was now uh, having children, I would do homeschooling. I would not do the schooling system like I did. My parents wanted me to do so. So I did all that was expected. In the end, I even got myself a doctorate just because it helps with status and, you know, the typical guy out there who can make my life more difficult. So I, I'm just using this, especially since two years in the corona regime. I have the better conversation with people who have not been indoctrinated for such a long time in schools and academia. Well, I think that that's one of your major strengths and why your stories are so fascinating because you are almost like a chameleon. You have been in on big corporate organizations, like at the forefront of meeting political, like influential people, celebrities, you've been featured in magazines. And at the same time, you're like me, you're a libertarian and an ambassador of Liberland and an ANCAP. Like, it's quite funny to me that you've been able to get in because some of the stories, and I do want to get into some of the stories of the people you've met, it's like, they just don't know you at all. Like how they thought that they could confide some of this stuff is just mind boggling to me. You know, my CV was a mainstream CV and I did everything right for a long time and I had a nice career. And in Formula One, you can meet super interesting people. At the time, I said it's like a World Economic Forum every two weeks, meeting CEOs and presidents and so on. I, that was what my selling proposition. Now, anyway, I'm out of the business since 10 years, but I would never repeat that phrase because now the World Economic Forum, I have understood, is not a good organization at all. However, I once almost got a job there. And uh, this is funny for me. In my personal transition process, I knew I was going to stop Formula One because I was very close with the Schumacher family and Michael Schumacher. And after his comeback, I knew I was going to stop Formula One because I had seen it all. I had had the best times and it could only get worse. And I'm the kind of guy who does the thing. And then if it's over, it's over. You know, I'm not hanging on. So I started uh, traveling a lot, but I said to myself, I want to get more insight into a power structure. So I had a headhunter friend in Geneva, a lady who 
actually had two options that I was very interested in. One was World Economic Forum. I had uh, three interviews and the close confidant of Klaus Schwab in the end did not uh, like me. He could see through me that I was only interested in experience and understanding the power structure. But I got another job at Rothschild Bank, which I think a lot of people see at, at the center of the cabal. And I don't disagree with that. Although in that one year I was there, I did not make any experiences at the inside, but I did meet Mr. Number One Rothschild. And I think it's a very powerful construction, but you know, it would be unfair if I would say I have seen proof of something. It's very compartmentalized and even the CEO and the top guys, they just do a normal work at the end of the day. But that was sort of the peak of my career in seeking interesting jobs. And since then, I have basically just traveled privately. Mm-hmm. So fully retired now, no interest in going back into corporate structures or anything like that? Zero interest. Zero, uh, yeah. I'm open if um, business pops up where uh, I have a personal passion for that I could do with friends or uh, partners that I would really respect and enjoy working with. But I live more laid back than before. I I had a time where I was really enjoying life at a high level. But, you know, the interesting thing is I do a lot of things pro bono now, actually everything. I have my engagement with Liberland. I'm the ambassador of Liberland in Germany. I have a a big cigar club in Germany where I'm hosting speeches of interesting people and a couple of other things, especially my annual Extreme Traveler Congress. And we have from billionaire to backpacker about 150 participants. And turns out that one of the billionaires is sponsoring some of my events. So I have been flying private jet more often now than in my time in Formula One, which is crazy if you think about it. It was not an intention, but it was a sort of a return on investment that came without asking for any return. Life is strange sometimes in these things, but you know the fundamental thing is if you have a magnet for something, put it on and work on those things coming to you that you wish to have. Like Jeff Bowick likes to say, a wish to the universe, I think. It does come. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned a more relaxed lifestyle. Now you're based out of Monaco. You live in Monaco. What has that been like for you? Yes, for the Expat Money Show, I think Monaco is one of the greatest places in the world. I moved there in 2007. It is easier to get there than people think sometimes. And you know that as an expert, if you just sort of move there as a rich person, not to pay taxes, there are more requirements. But if, like myself, I have a company Uh, that is in sports, you're very welcome there. And you don't need to have a million on your bank account, for example, as a qualification. You just need to rent an apartment. And then uh, you have to have enough to to show that you will not uh, starve. And then basically you get a residence. Cost of living is uh, high for housing. For food, it's the same like anywhere in Europe. It's a power hub, especially uh, for the business that I was in, Formula One, really the center of the universe in Monaco. I love it for that. Well, it kind of sounds a little bit like when I lived in Dubai and Abu Dhabi. Very high cost of living, but definitely a power center where you would meet some of the, I mean, some of the people I met when I was living there was just insane. Billionaires, I met a US senator that I had conversations. Actually, I had conversations with him about Iran, about economic warfare with Iran. I met ambassadors, royal family from not just the UAE, but the 
Al-Sabayas and royal families from Qatar and Kuwait and uh, Oman and Bahrain. I mean, we met tons of different royal families when living over there. Things that you just would never in a million years meet people like this living in Canada. Even if I lived in downtown Toronto, I wouldn't have met people like this. Yeah, I love the Emirates. I love the Arab world in particular. And I have an anecdote of doing business there. Uh, there was a time when I wanted with the Klitschko brothers or Vladimir Klitschko, the younger boxer, the heavyweight world champion from Ukraine, both two meter tall guys, fantastic characters. I wanted to raise the biggest fund ever for a boxing bout in the tradition of Rumble in the Jungle or uh, Thriller in Manila. So we went to each of the rulers in all the Emirates. And that was a trip, very interesting to do that with uh, Klitschko together in itself and to meet all those people. But there were some risks that were unforeseen. Sheikh Mohammed al-Maktoum invited us to his falconry desert camp. He didn't come himself, but his nephew, I believe, was there. So high-profile person. And while driving there, one of the cars broke down. Okay, can happen. So we changed the rest of us in the other cars. Then when we were there, we had some shifter go-karts for the desert. And one in our group broke the shifter. <laughs> so bad news already. Then... A falcon was put on the arm of Vladimir Klitschko. And, the, you know, the way this works is the falcon has a hat on his head and the little cord is around the finger. And Vladimir let go of the cord before the hat was taken off. So the falcon flew 30, 40 meters high and lost orientation because of the hat. He can't see. And he dropped <laughs> from there to the ground. And I thought, okay, this is it. They will shoot us. <laughs> So the falcon survived, but he had broken his nose. Uh, what's that? His beak. I thought, okay, this now all the usual um, friendliness and hospitality is finished. And there were awkward feelings, but we survived. We came out again. <laughs> no boxing fight. <laughs> and to put things in context for anybody who's listening who doesn't know and understand, falcons in the GCC countries are prized animals and they can pay millions of dollars for a proper pedigree, really high quality falcon. It's the same as in the United States for a horse, for a racehorse at a very high caliber. They pay millions of dollars for it. So if you damaged his prize falcon, even the airlines there, you know how some airlines you can bring, if you have like a seeing eye dog or something, you can bring it on the airline. In in the Middle East, in the UAE, you can bring your falcon on. And I had I saw when I was traveling in first class, people who would bring their falcon in first class and get a first class seat for the bird. I, amazing. I didn't know that. Very interesting. <laughs> it's so it's so different, but yeah, maybe don't break the beak of the falcon. <laughs> Okay, so I would like to hear some more of your stories. And I, and I do want to tie things back to your experiences through the war zones, because I think this is really interesting. I have also gone through this journey of trying to understand the world. It's quite a monumental task, but it's kind of a lifelong goal. What have you learned from visiting all of these different types of war zone countries and meeting the players that are involved? What has been your insights? All the wars are orchestrated and manufactured and put into war theaters, as you say in the English or American language, a theater of war. And it's a harvest for very few. Wars are the harvest of the few. And they are narrated to us as 
sort of a coincidental eruption of a volcano that nobody could foresee, where nobody had control over the forces of nature of people fighting each other and the better one, like in a football game, this is all an illusion. One can see this especially in Ukraine these days. I think it's pretty logical that if that was full-blown war, Russia would not have stopped short of Kiev. They would have gone in. I will go into detail how many people I know on both sides of that conflict personally. So some of my friends, Chechens, were two weeks lying around Kiev, and I could communicate with them all the time over WhatsApp. Amazing. And now you have questionable characters like this Tralala singer Bono is giving little concerts for television cameras in the subway there, or you have even more questionable politicians from Germany and the rest of the world meeting there for coffee. It's all ridiculous. If it was still serious, Russia against Ukraine, I mean, the first thing that would happen is that uh, Kiev would be under Russian control. So there's some kind of deal there that the Russian ethnic areas, which is the Donbas, Lugansk Republic, and uh, Donetsk Republic, and uh, probably the overland road to the Crimea, will in the end be uh, Russian or under Russian control. It's A lot of that is scripted. Same was in Syria, in every war zone. This is the main takeaway from all my travels. Well, it's so interesting when you start looking at war zones through a different lens, through a lens that is not the mainstream media. Now, growing up in North America, you're kind of taught, especially sharing 5,000 kilometer border with the US, that war is noble and we need to support the troops and they're so proud of the military. And it's so wild to watch these types of things as a critical thinker and someone who really believes in individual rights and individualism to watch people sacrifice themselves for a organization, in this case, a state, who doesn't give a shit about them at all. And it's all just drama and propaganda and they're paying with their lives. And it's just so mind boggling for me. I still can't get my head around it after looking at this for so many years, just how this happens. Yeah, Canada is now also, since uh, Justin Castro was selected into power, is one of the rogue nations in my worldview. Previously, it seemed to be more peaceful, although participating in wars as well. Now, Canada is also agitated in the same way the U.S. has been, and mainly there to send young American boys as cannon fodder into foreign wars. They're lucky because they don't die as easily as those on the other side, because it's very asymmetric warfare. So that's an advantage for the American uh, soldiers. And, you know, with a fundamentally rotten system like in the U.S. for many years, many uh, young people had no alternative instead of going to the army. That was attractive to them. But that is the rogue regime number two, let's say. USA has always been the muscle for the powers that be. Financial and intellectual hub was uh, London. And the people who control those countries are basically defining where the next war is going to be fought. And then everything is turned upside down. Victims become perpetrators and vice versa. And a Barack Drone Bomber gets a Nobel Prize for Peace, having done nothing, and then starts to kill more children than any other probably person in the world, for sure any other president, although every other US president has been a mass murderer. Little exception was Trump, although that guy is not positive, neither in my opinion. They are all bad, those who are power of states. So you see, I'm, I'm almost starting a rant 
because so many people out there are so fed by propaganda that everything they believe is wrong. And it's a Stockholm syndrome. They start praising the people that oppress them. I think Martin Luther King said a similar quote, and that's how our system works. And I finish uh, this little rant by saying, one of the reasons I've been so deep into many war zones and I've met the key players is that I am credible. I'm not a cheerleader for the aggressors, for the powers that be. I'm with the truth and with the victims. And you can usually in any war zone out there get inside if people believe in you that you're credible to take their story, the story of the weaker part of the, of the victims. You take that out to the world. They take you in. On the aggressor side, on the strong side, you have to be a propaganda whore, you have to get embedded with the military, then you can get in as well. But it's a totally different experience, for sure. Well, to circle back on your point on Canada, Canada was a was supposedly a peacekeeping nation. They would send troops in for peacekeeping, which a lot of Canadians like to believe. Now I was reading a statistic saying that Justin Castro has just committed over $500 million for heavy artillery to be sent to Ukraine. What kind of peacekeeping do you do with heavy artillery? And it was the largest donation from the Canadian Armed Forces or the Canadian government to a foreign country for arms. And it's like, wow, things have really changed considerable in the last few years. I mean, I left Canada over 20 years ago, thank God. But it's just so bizarre what has been happening in the world. And people still seem to think that Canada is a peace-loving country. I, don't, I think that that's being shattered quite quickly, but it's wild. I think that there is a, a strategy of the corona regime to close the previous countries that welcomed people that wanted to leave Europe. Like the classic was to go maybe to the US, but much rather to Canada, to Australia, to New Zealand. But now... These sort of refuge countries are closed. And those that want to flee Central Europe, for example, or the United States, they have to go to different countries that seem more exotic, but are better anyway. Canada has a really particularly steep downfall. I think it was foreseeable with some inside knowledge. For example, what I learned early on, because I was always interested in, in uh, politics, like my thesis in university was comparing Russia's way from plan economy to market economy and China's transition, transformation. So I learned early on that Gorbachev, who is a hero in the West, but he's hated in Russia, he was just a, a puppet put in place to end the Cold War. And his handler, the person really in power, was Alexander Yakovlev. And that guy, as a Russian Jew, was sent to study in Columbia University as a kid from Moscow and then became ambassador to Canada and closest friend of Castro's father or uh, the old Trudeau. Pierre. They are all communists, guys. Yep. So Yakovlev is the uh, godfather to Justin Trudeau. And at the same time, the handler who finished the Cold War by putting uh, Gorbachev into place. These are very high level puppet strings. Yeah, I know when I started working in this field, I had so many people who really dreamed about moving to Europe. The interest level of Canadians and Americans to now live in Europe has basically disappeared. And I have an increasing number of European clients as well who are trying to get out. And we're now looking at places like Latin America, pretty much 
Latin America seems to be one of the only safe havens. And even in that, there's only very small enclaves of any freedom left. I was just in Peru and it was absolutely brutal there with the COVID regime. I mean, there were still people wearing two masks. Actually, I'll tell you a quick story. It was 9.30 at night. We're walking around in Lima and we're in the nicest area, the most wealthy area in Lima, a city of 8 million people. And it's about 9.30 at night and we want to go in and buy some bottled water to take back to the hotel. And we got stopped trying to enter the grocery store because we only had one mask, not even, I mean, we weren't even wearing it. It was in our pocket. We put it on for them and they're like, no, you need two masks and you need to show your COVID certificate, your vaccine certificate. I'm like, this is absolutely mental. We just turned around and walked away. And this is, you know, mid 2022, things like this are still going on. I'm not going to say that all of Latin America is free. It certainly is not. But there are still enclaves in Latin America, which is okay, where I think places like New Zealand, Australia, Canada, which we've been talking about, I think are completely off the map. I just have seen massive capital flight, massive intellectual flight, massive human capital that is leaving these countries. And what's being left behind are the poor, weak, and stupid in these countries. And I just see this as an absolute downward spiral of these countries. Yes, it's sad to watch it. I'm glad that I'm about 50. I'm going to be 53 at the end of the year. So I've basically seen it. I've ticked the boxes. I have had a fantastic life and I have expectations that things turn uh, not for the better. I think it will get a lot worse before it becomes better again. So I try to be mentally prepared. It's important to keep one's soul intact, to have good friends, to have to stay in touch with friends all over the world. Like I have reactivated friends in Canada, actually, who think like myself. In Belarus, I have an old friend. Uh, in Martinique, all kinds of places. And back in Monaco or in Germany, I have a small circle of friends who think alike. And that keeps my soul alive. And I have to be honest, staying a lot in the nature with my dog, that also helps me. But I have come to terms with the fact that freedom as we knew it is going to be finished. In particular, for guys like us who knew the loopholes in the fence before and were sort of doing well on the other side of the fence, I think Corona regime is there to close those loopholes even more for people who want to get outside the system, outside the tax farm. And at the end of the day, through experts like you, it's still possible to find better solutions. But for a guy like me who has basically his life behind himself, I watch the, the spectacle as it's unfolding. Mm -hmm. Well, that reminds me, we have another mutual friend, Doug Casey, and a lot of his strategy or what, you know, we've had calls with him and he says that he really likes some of these war-torn countries or countries that are run by a dictator because it's very easy to meet all of the players involved and you're a novelty there and you can have a big estate home and that's it. You get left alone in these countries. So it's it's so bizarre that you actually have to go to some of these very unfree countries to find any freedom. Everything is Alice in Wonderland through the looking glass. Everything is turned upside down. It is a very bizarre situation. Absolutely. I think that uh, the United States is and has been for a while one of the biggest shitholes in the world. This is a term that I don't like to use, but it's being used in the US. And why? Because it's always been a police state. There's no place in the world where I'm more afraid of police than in the US. Actually, only there. 
in all other countries, I get along with police often quite easily. Also, by the way, interrogations at the borders, it's always friendly in Russia, but in the US, oh God, I have been grilled there. So yeah, I stay away from those countries uh, anyway. I do have good contacts in, in so-called rogue nations and they are usually very good people. And for example, Chechnya, I feel at home, which is very hard to understand for, you know, people haven't been there, but it's a great place. And one can even become friends with people who are on the other side of the political spectrum. As we've started to talk about uh, crazy meetings that I had in war zones, I was really with the whole leadership of the FARC, with all the seven leaders from number one, uh, called Timoshenko, number two called Black Death, to uh, the Lara Croft, a Dutch girl called Tanja Niemeyer, in the mountains, in their founding place, where they themselves hadn't been since six years. That was one of the highlights in my life. So these are hardcore communists who fought and killed and almost got killed for a belief in a system that is the devil for me. But when we travel together, and now it's not an immediate war situation, there's one guy I'm still friends with, definitely. And it's crazy to imagine that about 15 years ago, I would have been kidnapped by them and maybe shot. So I take people as they come and it's not so easy, uh, a black and white world out there. So as a hardcore libertarian and cap person, I was really with the FARC communists in the mountains in, uh, in Colombia. And when I'm in Chechnya, they are very much Muslim and, you know, an agnostic, but they are always careful. They don't want to be too missionary and we get along very well. These are the things that I treasure in my travels. So a bit of an update for you guys. Our Facebook group, Expat Money Forum, has grown so fast. It's unbelievable. I think we are at around 6,000 people who have joined the group. It's pretty funny in there, I have to be honest with you, because sometimes we get these really woke commies that try to join the group. They last like a week and then someone pushes them out or they say something that upsets and these social justice warriors just start crying and get really, really angry and throw a fit and think that they're tactics of being a victim are going to work in our group. And it's just not the case. So it's so funny. I want you guys to see what's going on in there. We call it shaking the tree. So anytime you see in the group, someone shaking the tree, either through a meme or something that they're putting out, it just, it's so funny to watch the reactions. Anyways, the group is growing like crazy. If you're not a member already, I highly encourage you to join. It's free. There is no cost. And you can either find it by searching for us on Facebook, Expat Money Forum, or go to expatmoneyforum.com and it'll redirect you to the site. We're having so much fun over there. If you haven't joined the conversation, I hope you do soon. That's it. Let's go. Well, I remember when you did that last trip that you just described to Colombia, you sent me some of the pictures. Actually, you invited me to come with you, but I can't remember what was happening at the time. I think I was still living in Abu Dhabi and I just couldn't get the time away. Or I, it might have even been, well, that was probably what, three or four years ago. Maybe my I was just dealing with my first child who was born. My daughter's five years old. So I think I was dealing with that, caring for a new baby at home. But I remember you sending me pictures of being out there and hiking through and meeting the FARC and little controlled areas of Colombia. And I've been going back and forth to Colombia for over 20 years. And it's also one of my favorite countries. And the pictures were just wild. <laughs> Some of the stuff you told me was amazing. 
It was the most intense trip I ever did. And uh, by the way, if you're there next time, you're most invited to meet at least uh, the, those friends of mine there in uh, Bogota. When you're with buddies in a Jeep, smoking cigars, then getting on horseback, then walking miles and miles up or on horseback on the top of the mountain. And this is the hut where I think Manuel Marolanda founded the FARC and all those veterans of FARC that survived are there. It was just an amazing experience and nobody expected that beforehand. Only afterwards, we had this fantastic experience to tell. You've just made me think of a story from the first time I went to Colombia. I'll just very, very quickly tell it and then I want to get back on track. I don't want to go too far off course here. But I remember it was probably 2003 and I was in Colombia and I was traveling through the Caribbean region. So we were in Santa Marta and we did the Lost City Trek. It's La Ciudad Perdida. It was a five-day hike through paramilitary country controlled by the paramilitaries. And I remember we were coming back and I'm quite athletic. So there was a small group of us. We were independently invited to come and tour this. Not just anyone could go, but we went and had an invitation and we're hiking through coca fields through this region in the mountains. And we're coming back after a five-day hike and we meet this gentleman who's dressed in all fatigues and absolutely jacked and completely high out of his mind. And he's got grenades strapped to him and he's got his automatic weapon and we're chit-chatting with him and as we're hiking and, you know, we offer him a, a smoke and we're telling dirty jokes with him in Spanish. And he's like, well, where are you from? I'm like, yo soy canadiense, I'm Canadian. And my friend is from Belgium. And he goes, oh, I love Belgium. It's my favorite country. That's where my gun is made. And he hands us his AK-47. <laughs> So I, I'm sure somewhere in, in my files, I have pictures of me with the paramilitaries 20 years ago in Colombia holding an AK-47. I'm like in my early 20s or something like that and just covered in mud and just such a funny experience. But we had a great time. We hiked with him for a couple of hours during the day and told lots of jokes and he was okay. And he was there to guard the cocaine fields there. So. It's important to get on the right brainwave with people like that. If you come from the wrong angle, it can turn difficult or even dangerous. And with my life experience, I usually have no problem with grown-ups, be they military, even mafia or gangster or whatever. The danger is children because they don't understand the social game yet. So let's say children in favelas might attack because they think they can I remember one dangerous moment when I entered Libya in 2011 during the Arab Spring, as I said, from the Cairo side by car. We were allowed in by the rebels because they had already taken the east of the country. So we were driving and driving in the country and there were road posts. And the road posts were by little red children, like 14, 15 year old kids with Kalashnikov and, you know, not a real uniform, whatever they were wearing. And they were looking at our documents my Austrian buddy and I together alone. And when they saw my passport, this young kid found an Iranian stamp and he started laughing and showing it around to the other kids. Then I got nervous <laughs> because I thought, oh, is Iran the wrong place to have been? In the end, I could proceed. But in that moment, especially with kids, one has to be more careful. And grown-ups can be crazy too. One of my craziest encounters was in Liberia during the inauguration of President Ellen Johnson's her leave. She was backed by CIA. CIA was sitting next to her all the time, American banker. And she was actually given a Nobel Peace Prize so she would be elected. So it's all orchestrated wow. things. And 
so I'm at the inauguration. Hillary Clinton was also there during the day, but I didn't see her. I was in the evening dinner and there was Prince Johnson. And that is a crazy guy. I remember seeing him when I was a student on television, when he took the power in a coup from his predecessor, Samuel Doe. He caught him and cut off the ears live on television on CNN. I remember seeing that. That was, and then, so there were shouting and interrogations. And after that, he killed Samuel Doe, although that was not on television. So here I'm with that guy. I didn't talk with him, but he was basically next to me. But my, my local fixer said, a high-level guy, actually, he said, don't speak to him. It's, we are also not sure about him. So everybody <laughs> tries not to take any risks with this guy. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty wild. I mean, I've not been to either Libya or Liberia. Must be a very interesting scene over there, I'm sure. Liberia is fine now. Okay. And Libya on and off depends on where you are there. Yeah. So where are some of the other places that you want to head in the Danger Zone Travel Club organization? What do we call ourselves? Yeah, so my organization, ETIC, Extreme Traveler International Congress, an annual meeting of the most traveled people. Next year, we'll be in Bangsamoro Republic, Bangsamoro, where we will meet the MILFs, M-I-L-Fs. But the translation is not the unspeakable. It's <laughs> Islamic Liberation Front. Okay. And this is an Islamic terror organization that's been active, now less active in the Philippines for 30 years, I guess. And this area in Mindanao called the Bangsamoro Republic. Moro is the part of the world which actually means the Moors. Yeah. And Bangsa, I'm not sure, must be a regional thing. So maybe the Eastern Moors, I don't know. That's where the Muslim part in Mindanao lives. And I want to get to an island called Holo Island, where there's a huge mosque, right? And I have this picture. It's this, I've seen for many years, and I've always dreamed of going to Bangsamoro Republic. And now I've met, um, through my travel scene, a lady whose father is a high military man. And we will go to Bangsamoro Republic, but I will not say the date now, because this is one of the things, never announce your travel plans in advance. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, I'll be excited for that one. Make sure you send me an invite. I'll be interested to see that Definitely. for sure. The problem is that some of the places that You've already done trips there. Like, I would really like to see Somalia. I would like to go to Iraq. I would like to go to Afghanistan. I would like to go some of the more remote areas in Pakistan. But I know you've been to all these places. So we need to figure out a place where I have you've been, but I haven't been, and maybe organize something to one of those places. As I'm at the end of my travel career, and I'm really burnt out, I have problems to motivate myself even to go into an airplane. So I'm sort of cherry-picking the really interesting places like Bangsamoro Republic. But there's one trip I'm working on and it was supposed to happen this coming winter. I want to do Transantarctica by car, a double crossing of Antarctica. And I've got it all set up and we were nine people in the team with three cars. The experts are actually from Iceland who have these big wheel cars. And because of the war, two of my Eastern European friends withdrew from the project and now it's not happening because it's very expensive. It's almost $250,000 per person. If somebody's listening, I'm looking for two <laughs> passengers who pay $250,000 each. We will cross Antarctica. <laughs> By car. <laughs> By car. What kind of car can you use to go across Antarctica? 
It's Toyota Land Cruisers, and they are being rebuilt for Antarctica with bigger tires and maybe other technical changes. But they've been doing this for many years for different expeditions. You know, usually when you hear about people crossing Antarctica by on foot, many of them are actually accompanied by a car. Okay, for like their goods and everything and their food and their equipment. Uh huh. And a little hut that is heated behind like the wealthy uh, adventurers. <laughs> of course, there's the big guys like Reinhold Messner or Sebastian Copeland. They were really walking the backup. So yeah, difference. Is that the guy that walked from Sweden to Nepal or rode a bike from Sweden to Nepal, then hiked the Mount Everest without oxygen, then hiked back down and then rode his bike back to Sweden or something like that? Well, Messner is the guy, Italian, but German-Italian, who was the first to climb all the highest mountains, 8,000ers, and without oxygen, then solo. And he also walked with another guy, Arvid Fuchs, one of the first to walk Antarctica uh, to the South Pole and, and back on a different route, so they crossed it. He's a superhero. I know the biking for that long way. I'll find the the gentleman's name and I'll I'll send it to you at some point. Yeah, there are some incredible human beings out there. I reminds me when I lived in Australia. I lived in Australia for three years back in the early two thousands, and we were four wheel driving and camping out in the Red Center. We were really remote, like really out in the middle of nowhere, and on a little dirt road we saw some guy riding his bike and we're like, what the hell is going on? And he stopped to talk to us and he must've been about six foot six, like two meters tall, rail thin, like a toothpick and started chit-chatting with him. And we broke out the camp stoves and we shared a meal with him and, and visited with him. He had rode his bike. I don't remember exactly where he had started, if it was in Germany or somewhere in Western or Central Europe. And he had rode his bike all the way through Europe gone down to the Middle East, rode across there, took a ferry or a boat up, rode across India, Nepal, all the way down Asia, all the way to Papua New Guinea, then took a boat across to Australia, rode his bike from Darwin down to the Red Center. And that's where we had met him. I think he was like two and a half years on his bike, something like that. And I had been living in Melbourne. So six months later, he contacted me, sent me an email. I'm in Melbourne. I got here about a month ago. I'm hanging out here for a bit. Would you like to get together? I said, yes, absolutely. So I went and met him and had lunch with him. And he had put on like 70 kilos or something like that. He was absolutely jacked, huge. And I was like, what's going on? He's like, well, I stopped cycling for... You know, I was cycling 12 hours a day, 10, 12 hours a day for two years. I stopped moving. And now for a month or two, I'm still eating the same way as I was because he would have to eat 10,000 or 12,000 calories a day to be able to cycle for that long. And he was absolutely huge. And I, I didn't even recognize him at first. And a couple months later, he started cycling again. And his plan was to cycle around the entire world. It's so wild, some people. Yeah, there's people who are so strong and such talents that I sometimes feel ashamed when I talk about my travels. For example, <laughs> on the two most difficult ice roads in Russia, uh, in winter to Magadan, it's called the Road of Bones. I had for three days and nights, minus 50 degrees Celsius. That is like on planet Mars. Was and we were the first, at least, that you can find on the internet who did that. And I was scared as shit all the time. 
another trip to the northernmost road end in the world. It's the Anabar Bay, where no Westerner had driven before. So that was a real number one. It was crazy that's still possible in the world. And 4,000 kilometers up, 4,000 down to get to Irkutsk, which is also uh, quite cold still. And I was sort of proud of the achievement. And then I met this German guy whose his real name is Richard Löwenherz, which means Richard Lionheart. It's his real name. And he did that by bicycle in the winter, sitting <laughs> outside without a tent. So I thought, okay, I, I'm just, I can't even talk about my adventures because, you know, it's ridiculously small. <laughs> well, I, I have to say, I feel sometimes the same when I'm speaking with you. I'm, I'm certainly not a jealous person, but I've traveled a lot in my life. And you and I smoke cigars and we, we chat pretty much every week at this point. And I listen to some of your adventures and I'm going, Jesus, like, I feel like I've barely started traveling when I look at some of the places that you've been to. It's kind of you to say it. Uh, I have a big heart for, for other travelers. Actually, with my organization, I usually try to get sponsors so we get the backpackers on board with the billionaires. So I want to make sure we have a, a nice uh, group feeling. And when I talk about my trips and I wrote a book at some point, I don't exaggerate. I don't invent stuff. Like, I've never been shot at. And other people, they come back and they say, you know, they were disarming the guy with the Kalashnikov and did that and that to survive. And, you know, I mean, it doesn't happen to me somehow. And I'm still, in a way, proud that I've done those difficult places. But I want to tell it as it is. And it's not that dangerous. It's not that difficult. And at the end of the day, maybe I like this superhero story that others have. But I think it's so often invented and then gives a creation back home that those places are so dangerous and the people there are so bad. And that's not fair because usually in those countries, people are so friendly. And even if they suffer from conflict, they take it in a very sovereign way. Ukraine is a bit different at the moment. That's very excited, very ignited. But I have to give a lot of compliments to the locals in those difficult places. Usually great people. Yeah. I mean, I've been to over 100 countries. The only time I was ever robbed was not even robbed. I remember... I was actually doing my national lifeguarding service, my NLS, and it was in Canada. And I was doing one of the exams. This was like 15 years ago. And I had put my wallet and stuff like that in my locker and they busted the locker. That was in London, Ontario, Canada, when I was back for a short period of time because I was doing some exams for that. Like I'm a master scuba diver and a national lifeguard in Canada. That's the only time I've ever had anything stolen. That was in my hometown. That wasn't in Nairobi. That wasn't in Botswana. That wasn't in, I don't know, Brazil or something like that. I was in Canada. And the only time something violent happened, I was probably the year 2000 or maybe 2001. I was traveling in France, in the south of France, in Montpellier. And I had come out of my hostel and there was a group of French punks and they all had their dogs. And they followed me for like four or five blocks. And I could see that they were clearly following me. And I ducked into a McDonald's and I hung out in McDonald's for like two hours until they got bored and left. In 22 years of continual travel, that is all that has happened to me. One was in Canada and one was in France, supposed to be two of the most developed places and safest places in the world. And it's like, no, that's where the bad things happen. I completely understand you. Like Monaco is super safe, but once you go along the Côte d'Azur, it is dangerous. And a lot of things happen there. I was lucky, but 
I know friends who have been attacked, even in the car, uh, in the cabriolet, people jump in, in the south of France. The most aggressive moments that I experience when I'm in Germany, walking my dog, and there's people on a bicycle, and it's the battle of who is, who's got the right of way. And I have had more violence there in Germany than in, in other countries. So the only physical fight I ever had was in the beginning of my travel career in Morocco. As you said, uh, you were there also like 20, 25 years ago, and it was more wild then, not as organized as now. I was working at Hugo Boss, and we had a big golf tournament in Valderrama in the south of Spain. And I was there several days, and I had a day off, and I said, what I'm going to do, I'm going to try Morocco for the first time in my life, and took the ferry. From, the Tangiers. Uh, yeah, uh, Tangiers, from the Tarifa to... One of the worst places I've ever been. Tangiers is brutal. Sorry to interrupt you. That That's pretty rough. Yeah. I think I was 24, 25 years old. I arrive in Tangiers and I know how the system works, that all those young kids come there, they're called harpoons and it's like a mandatory guide. Because I was cocky at the time, I said to everybody, fuck off. And one guy <laughs> followed me all the time up in the Kaspar. And then there was this moment that I learned a lot from. I walked deep into an alleyway, big wall right, big wall left. And suddenly there is a, a crossroads and there's no people at all, very dark, right or left. And I'm just hesitating for a moment, left or right. This moment of weakness is when he attacked from the back. Was not violent. He basically took my shoulder, pushed me around and showed me his fist and said, now you're going to pay. Not more than that, no knife, nothing. But I instinctively, and I'm not a violent person, but I've learned some things. When I was in Turkey, I started learning that. I hit him three times on the body just to have some impact and no blood because I thought if one thinks fast in those moments, I thought if blood appears, That's bad when the others see us. So he was pushed back to the wall, but didn't go down. And then I walked slowly back for 50 meters or so to a main road. And then I somewhere hailed a taxi and I was gone. But I learned the little moment of weakness is, is when you're attacked. That's wild. I took that same ferry into Tangiers and immediately, that's like within an hour, got on a train and went to Fez, and Fez was a much better story. Tangiers is, was pretty rough. I mean, I've been to Morocco probably 10 or 15 times in my life, but the only to Tangiers once, and I remember taking a look around going, this is not nice. <laughs> Nowadays, when I travel to such countries, I will tell one of those harpoons or kids anywhere, look, I'm not in the mood of talking. I want you to accompany, you walk behind me, here's your $10, but leave me quiet. So we have an arrangement. Or if I like the person, he'll be my guide and we become friends. And I contribute to the local society. But at that time, I was not experienced. And so I, I take. By the way, many years later, I was invited to Morocco to bring a Formula One race there to Marrakesh. And the main person on my side was a high-level Secret Service person who I'm still friends with. So because often people ask me, ah, you know people from the Secret Service. How do you know? They would never tell you. In some instances, they don't tell you, but there's others where they have an official role. Also, like in Russia, it's completely normal to, to be interrogated by the FSB, the former KGB, when you're in border areas, and they're super friendly, and there's nothing like a movie about it. Well, and then you can also clearly show why you're there, the organization that you run and the things that you're doing. You know, you're not, well, I don't know. Are you... Uh, CIA operative yourself? Hmm, am I talking to a fan? Often people think that. And also <laughs> uh, people tell me right in my face, you must be on a mission. Nobody would be as blunt as me. Like I'm so, uh, 
the portrayal of a guy who wants to look like a Secret Service guy. You are very dapper. I could see you being the German 007. Yeah, the Germans are not dapper, unfortunately. I'm an exception. But I love, uh, obviously, the James Bond style. And in those countries, I do get interrogated. And one of my hottest grillings was when I entered Turkey from an Azerbaijani exclave called Naxi Chevan. That is really exotic. And those 15 years ago, it was so exotic that the border guard told me that in one year, there's only about two foreigners who cross there per year. And because I lived in Turkey, he could see that in the computer somehow. And he even knew the names of my parents from the computer because they had worked there as German foreign service members. He grilled me for two hours or so, and I started to sweat because that's a hot area, the Kurdish conflict, Armenia next door. So in the end, it, it went fine, but I do get interrogated. But since I have my book with my pictures in there, for example, on my first trip to the Donbass, on the way out, the, the border was completely blocked because the Russians don't just let the Donbass people travel to them. There's a huge line and I had to jump the line and talk myself through. And so I showed in the book my picture with Vladimir Klitschko and Ramzan Kadyrov. And that was quite funny, peculiar, because Klitschko stood for their enemies, but they still respect him because he's a Ukrainian superhero. But now in the Donbass, they are sort of the enemy. And Kadyrov was now their ally. And now that was seven, eight years ago. Now they are even complete allies in that war. But just to be able to show that I know these strong people is a security layer. That's why I learned this actually from a famous German journalist who passed away at a high age, who was in every country. His name is Peter Scholatur. He carried always photos of him traveling with Ayatollah Khomeini in the Air France jet in 97, coming to Tehran. And with that photo, he could go to the whole Islamic world, good guys, bad guys. He was always respected. And that's a good tip for people. If you have a sort of photo in a fitting context, take it with you. <laughs> I will definitely keep that in mind. It kind of reminds me, I, I used to read an author I read a whole bunch of his stuff. I'm not even sure if he's still around. His name's Robert Young Pelton, and he wrote a book called World Most Dangerous Places. And I devoured everything he ever wrote and loved his type of stuff. And he had so many pictures of him with gorillas and farks and warlords and things like that and had his books and would even have them holding up like his logo and his banner on a flag and things. I think he has had his time. He was great. He also uh, fascinated me. I read the book and I followed his blog and he has an online forum. But that online forum is so bad now. And Robert Young Pelton is so bad now. He's a sort of Democrat propaganda pussy now. And he lives from his fame in the past. What fascinated me most actually is that he participated in the Camel Trophy. This is something that I missed in life because I'm a little too young for that, but he did it. But his stories like being kidnapped in Colombia is questionable. He's a guy who thickens the plots himself. I did get that. I don't know. I think I actually, we tried to get him on the show at some point a couple of years ago. I don't remember exactly. We tried to get him on the show, found him on Twitter and saw this really, like a lot of really leftist type of propaganda coming out of his Twitter. And I was like, this makes absolutely no sense. How can you have traveled so much and seen all of these places and been to these, had these experiences and been to these places? and come out with, that is a good idea. Like, it's just very bizarre. I think the answer is, as always, follow the money. He gets money from funds that want him to 
talk leftist. And then he has sold his soul to the left because a priori people like him who are strong men, courageous, who go for adventure, they don't fall for the leftist bullshit. But he did, and that's where I lost respect for him. Yeah, I would still like to get him on the show at some point, but I don't know. It's just, yeah, my respect level's certainly gone down since I'd learned these types of things, and now you've just solidified what I had a feeling about as well. I'd be curious if he would come on your show because he seems to be one of those guys who play this game, scarcity creates demand. It's very hard to get me. I'm a superhero, you know, I'm not going to do anything. This is also something I don't like. It's typical for mainstream figures that they become arrogant. And what I like about, you know, the superheroes of our scene, for example, the libertarian anarcho-capitalist world, with extremely few exceptions, all those people are open to meet with others, also with people who don't have maybe a prominent name. However, they know they are living and fighting for the same principles that connects them. And arrogance is not allowed. But Robert Young Pelton from you know the distance that I know him seems to be very difficult to approach. Yeah, it's a shame. I don't know why some people play this game. I mean, I've done some crazy and amazing things in my life, but I just look at myself as a normal guy, same as everyone else. And, you know, I have clients who come to Panama on a daily basis and even people who are not clients, just subscribers. And they're like, Mikel, I'd love to buy you dinner. I'm like, cool, let's go out for dinner. And I sit down and we just chit chat and have a nice time and visit and make friends. I mean, and this is an open invitation. If if my listeners are coming down to Panama I, and, and I'm available and I'm in the country and you're not a psychopath or going to do something weird, I would love to have dinner with you. I think it's great to meet people and share ideas and chit chat about our adventures and what you've done. And I'm as genuinely interested in other people's lives as people are in mine. You know, you can't let any of these types of things go to your head. It's just not good. Well said. I'm interested in other people's stories as well. Uh, I'm very curious still now. And this is basically the magnets. Then interesting people come to you. Absolutely. Colia, I am done my cigar. I am on my absolute nub of this here. Amazing conversation today. I really, really enjoyed it. If my listeners want to get a hold of you, if they want to follow along with your blog or read your book, where can we send them? Well, I don't have a real presence like a professional blog. I have an amateur blog on WordPress, but I do have a lot of clicks, nevertheless. The easiest way to find me is on spori.net, S-P-O-R-I.net. And from there on, you can probably find my email address and my blog. And especially listeners today may be interested in my Danger Zone travel, so you will find them all there. And I hope you like it. Brilliant. Thank you so much for your time. And I will talk to you soon. I'll talk to you next week. I think we've got a call. <laughs> Fantastic, my friend. All the best to Panama. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Okay, what a fantastic interview. I hope you guys got a ton of insights from that one. Now, if you guys are expats or digital nomads, or you want to be expats or digital nomads or have an international life, then you need to think about your insurance. There is no question about this. Don't try to be Mr. or Mrs. Invincible and think that nothing will happen to you on the road. I hope that nothing happens to you, but you should be covered nonetheless. And don't be one of those people who think that you're going to use the socialized medicine in your host country. Usually these programs suck, to be honest with you. And really, the point of being an expat is not to be a burden on some other country. Really, you want to be taking care of yourself. Personal responsibility. Remember, guys. Okay, so 
To find out more about this company, all you need to do is go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash insurance. They have a ton of different options. They're really changing the landscape of insurance, and I'm really stoked to be working with them. So go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash insurance. You guys can get a quote. You can find out more about what they cover, what they don't cover, how to get involved, which countries, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You can learn more at expatmoneyshow.com. And that's it. Have an amazing week, and I will see you next Wednesday on the podcast. Ciao. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. I have managed to secure exclusive rights to a block of villas in one of the hottest up-and-coming regions in my current home country, Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investors Workshop, capitalizing on the globally recognized resort brand coming to Panama. We will discuss how the tourism landscape in this region will change rapidly upon the public announcement of this project and how I have secured the rights for my clients to capitalize on this opportunity before anyone else. Thanks to my connections in the region, I have negotiated pricing that front runs everyone else. Think early, early bird pricing. From gourmet restaurants to vibrant clubs, poolside activities, and even live bands, this resort is going to pump some serious life into the region. But this isn't what excites me or what should excite you either. The exciting part is that these world-class amenities and top brand will attract tens of thousands of tourists. Tourists who will fork over top dollar to stay at our investment properties. Register free at expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for this free real estate workshop. See you on May 4th at 10 a.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinar.